hearts are mortgaged And our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we are Mother Nature's wage Just inside She is taking to the streets To release her secret rage Just inside Just in time. Welcome to the Convergence on Voice America. This is your host, Dr. Kurt Johnson of Unity Earth and the Inner Spiritual Dialogue Network. On this Voice America special and two more like it, we're going to be filling up with world-class writers, thought leaders, and activists, and we're going to be asking a question about our world's future. And it is phrased this way, our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged. So let me tell you more about what this all means. As you know, on our last two programs, both, both Voice America specials as well, we featured authors from the book, Our Moment of Choice, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. We chatted with nearly 20 writers from that important book including nine New York Times bestselling authors. And we had over 53,000 listeners, so we thank you for that. So what we're following with, starting with this broadcast and more in April and May, we think is something equally exciting. In our next three broadcasts, all of which will be Voice America specials from now through the late spring, We're combining the themes of our moment of choice, evolutionary visions, and hope for the future with those of another important book, which is really making waves, Atlas Hugged, a novel by Dr. David Sloan Wilson. If the name Sloan Wilson rings a bell, it's because Dr. Wilson's father is the famous novelist Sloan Wilson, author of A Summer Place and The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit both of which were also Hollywood blockbuster movies. Now, Atlas Hugged by David Sloan Wilson is a response and counterproposal to Ayn Rand's famous, if not infamous, book, Atlas Shrugged, published in 1957, which has had over 7 million readers. It became the icon and gospel for selfish individualism, greed is good, competition, conflict, and tribalism, a creature of its own turbulent time. But we're now historically in a different time, a time that makes so many so-called truths of the 1940s and 50s obsolete and simply no longer true. Today, both modern science and the highest of our transformational instincts causes us to realize that it's the cooperation and synergy that need to guide the way for our future, not division, competition, and conflict, or we simply may not have a future at all. A recent commentary on Atlas Hugged said, a response and counterproposal to Ayn Rand's controversial worldview from a celebrated scientist in the form of a sequel to her own novel would be big news, 
and this is it. So Dr. David Sloan Wilson, the author of Atlas Hugged, will be joining us in each segment of these Voice America specials. And he'll be dialoguing with such luminaries as David Corton, author of The Great Turning, When Corporations Rule the World, and Change the Story, Change the World. Marker Sean and Ben Reiki, the authors and filmmakers of the celebrated film, The Reunited States of America. Dwayne Elgin of the book and film Choosing Earth, and Jude Curavan of The Whole World View and The Cosmic Hologram. And Terry Patton of The New Republic of the Heart, and Anne-Marie Forhoof of Europe's Hague Center for Global Governance, Innovation, and Emergence. And when we conclude, we'll also be engaging with a number of world-class commentators on the nature and importance of stories. So we want to start this special with some introductory comments from the co-editors of our moment of choice. Dr. Robert Adkinson, who is also the author of the Nautilus Award-winning book, The Story of Our Time, and the Reverend Deborah Moldau, who is the International Director of the Evolutionary Leaders Circle, a project of the Source of Synergy Foundation from which the book, Our Moment of Choice, emerged. We three are the co-editors of Our Moment of Choice, which you can find out much more about at ourmomentofchoice.com. That's ourmomentofchoice.com. And you can find out much more about Atlas Hugged and then also receive the book free or for a donation at atlashugged.world. That's atlashugged.world. So let's start with you, Deborah. Deborah, give us your take on the meaning and importance of our joining of the message of these two important transformative books. And in our asking this question, our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged? Thank you so much, Kurt. And thank you for the vision uh, behind this conversation of putting these two books together and highlighting the uh, message that they both point to in very different and both, I think, very eloquent ways. So our moment of choice is a message that starts with the title. We're so grateful to have this title for the book because when uh, the Source of Synergy Foundation decided to do this book at uh, the prompting of Bob Atkinson, whom you'll hear from in a moment, uh, we had a title. And the title came from Greg Brayton, one of our wonderful best-selling authors who's been an inspiration to us in the evolutionary leaders circle from the very beginning. And he had gifted us with this title some years back when we first had an idea to do a book project that didn't happen. And this project happened largely because, again, of the efforts of Bob Atkinson to secure us a publisher and bring together the, all of the amazing evolutionary leaders who have donated chapters to this book. So uh, it was due to come out in September of 2020, and little did we know that we would be in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and a moment of pause for all of humanity across the globe 
and time for us to really recognize that the way we've been living has not been in harmony with the earth and that we need to change the entire course of human civilization. Now that sounds impossible, but I think that the, the 37 chapters all by these amazing evolutionary leaders like Deepak Chopra and Lynn McTaggart and Bruce Lipton and many, many more, uh, Dwayne Elgin, who will be a guest speaking to this topic. Uh, I think it, it really gives us hope for the future through these evolutionary visions, as our subtitle says, and uh, also action steps at the end of each chapter that give all of the readers some uh, just little ideas of how they can move forward in the direction of this new paradigm that's coming. Now, David Sloan Wilson, another member of our Evolutionary Leaders Circle, has written his vision, and he's also uh, one of the authors who's, who has a chapter in our Moment of Choice that he co-wrote with Kurt. Uh, but he's, he's presented in a novel a way to imagine that the world can change in as little as 100 days. And this is very inspirational. It, 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 okay, it's fiction, but fiction makes it a good read, a fast read, and really can, can bring into our consciousness that we can, we can turn things around. We are not stuck with the direction we're headed in. This truly is our moment of choice. So the question, is it going to be Atlas shrugged and who cares? Or is it going to be Atlas hugged? And is humanity going to come together as one human race, sharing our beautiful planet for the future in love and caring and vision? So this is the time. This is our moment. And both of these books, I think, are a real step forward. Thank you. Wow, Deborah. Yeah, so eloquent and so comprehensive to the topic. Thank you so much. Now over to Dr. Robert Atkinson. Thanks so much, Kurt. As co-editor of Our Moment of Choice with you and Deborah, it's been very fulfilling to see how 43 evolutionary visions came together in seven different circles to offer creative solutions to all the interconnected crises we face today. Each one contributes to a successful completion of the transformation of consciousness already underway. Our theme today, a moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged, is all about evolution, what that means individually and collectively, and especially what the evolution of consciousness means. The thing about understanding evolution, especially from a holistic perspective, is that it does not happen in a smooth, linear fashion. What guides evolution is an ongoing process of opposing forces interacting with each other for the purpose of bringing about the transformation needed to keep things moving along toward an intended outcome. This pattern repeats itself throughout history. So the transformation principle central to evolutionary process says opposition is a catalyst to transformation and unity is the result of this conscious confrontation of opposing forces. 
This principle illustrates how evolution is carried out within a framework of transformation as a cyclical process. There are built-in periods of struggle, turmoil, and confrontation, as we see all around us right now. So evolution unfolds developmentally and includes upheaval and renewal. This is confirmed by the world's wisdom traditions, as expressed in the words of the Buddha, all things originate from one essence, develop according to one law, and are destined to one aim. This timeless wisdom tells us that consciousness is designed to evolve toward wholeness and unity. So a really interesting aspect to all of this from the perspective of another book, The Story of Our Time, is that we can't overlook the role uh, and purpose of transformation in all of this. We see natural cycles, social cycles, and spiritual cycles all within the framework of story. This is one of the best ways to understand evolution and transformation. The purposeful pattern that story follows, and in particular, the emerging new story that we are all living into, is more than just a beginning, middle, and end. On a deeper level, all good stories follow the pattern of beginning, muddle, and resolution. This is the pattern that brings about transformation and facilitates evolution. So on our topic for today, with these two novels juxtaposed against each other, Atlas Shrugged clearly represents the muddle we've been dealing with and living within for many decades now, while Atlas Hugged represents the resolution that will take us into the future we envision. It is, very, it is a very clear choice that we have. Either greed is good and disintegration, or the common good and integration. All of the chapters in our moment of choice offer a clear vision of how we can move beyond the current muddles in society toward resolutions for the good of the whole. What it all comes down to is all the divisions around us are really false dualities. Of course, opposing forces are feeling more pronounced now than ever, and they are causing greater fear, bias, prejudice, and injustice than ever, too. But that is all based on the way we perceive reality or the consciousness we bring to it. A dualistic worldview, by its very nature, creates separation and results in all those other attitudes that cause conflict and worse. A holistic view, however, shifts our focus to the whole. With a perspective of non-duality, we see how all the diverse parts make up the same whole. This shows consciousness to be a continuum along which all things are tied together in an interconnected and interdependent whole with only gradations of conditions, attitudes, and values within the same whole. The choice of living into a future characterized by devolution, separation, competition, and behaviors and actions that are antisocial, or a future characterized by evolution, interconnectedness, cooperation, and behaviors and actions that are prosocial has never been clearer. A consciousness of wholeness places a unity of purpose above all else 
and acknowledges our diversity of views and appearances as our sustaining strength. The new story emerging in our time is about how all created things are interconnected and how there is a core of shared wisdom in all the world's indigenous and spiritual traditions, as well as in the arts and sciences. This inherent interconnectedness is built upon harmony and cooperation, which becomes so clear in reading Atlas Hugged. This is the only sustainable choice we have today. Wow, Bob, thanks so much. Uh, again, eloquent and so comprehensive to the topic. So thank you, Dr. Robert Atkinson and the Reverend Deborah Moldau, co-editors of Our Moment of Choice. So we are obviously off to a flying start. So let's go over right now to Drs. David Corton and David Sloan Wilson for the beginning of this discussion. More full biographical information for both of them is at the Voice America show page and at davidcorton.org and for David Sloan Wilson at atlashug.world and prosocial.world. So I'm here with David Corton and David Sloan Wilson and we can begin right away with David Corton's presentation. So over to David Corton. Thank you, Kurt. I'm so delighted to be here today with you and David Sloan Wilson to explore the epic choice now facing humanity as a globally interdependent species on a finite living earth. The central theme of this discussion will be the significance of the David Sloan Wilson theory that the evolution of life is primarily a product of cooperation, not competition. We begin with a recognition that among Earth's many species, we humans have a distinctive ability to imagine and choose our future. Our current choices are disrupting Earth's ability to maintain the stability of Earth's climate, its supplies of fresh water, the fertility of its soils, the breathability of its air, and its species diversity. Our survival and the well-being of Earth and ourselves depend on achieving deep transformation. At a speed that humans have never previously imagined, much less attempted. Two statistics sum up our current crisis. According to estimates of the Global Footprint Network, it would require 1.7 Earths to sustain the current level of human consumption. We have only one Earth. Yet even before COVID-19 shut down much of the economy, a majority of Earth's human population faced a dehumanizing daily struggle to survive, while a tiny minority indulged in displays of obscene opulence. Last year, January 2020, the combined wealth of just 26 billionaires exceeded that of the poorest half of humanity, 3.9 billion people. As the excluded struggle to survive the increased pressures of the COVID-19 crisis, the world's richest billionaires enjoy a bonanza so extreme that the business news now publishes daily financial results for the world's richest people. 
Just for example, on November 12, 2020, it reported that the total net worth of Jeff Bezos, one individual, Jeff Bezos, on that day, the world's richest person stood at $183 billion. He was down $1.5 billion from the day before, but up $68 billion from the beginning of the year. Meanwhile, a global population of 7.8 billion people continues to grow, thus putting further human pressure on an already overstressed Earth and increasing ever-growing pressure on what remains. This is an unprecedented global-scale societal failure. Yet current economic theory assumes that human well-being is best secured by competing to maximize our personal financial returns so we can grow our personal consumption and thus grow the gross domestic product, GDP, of our respective nations. This deeply flawed economic theory is technically known as neoliberal economics. It is more accurately described as egonomics because it assumes a world of egocentric individuals seeking individual gratification through ever-growing personal consumption. This version of economics is a flawed political ideology, not a science. Its claim to legitimacy rests in part on what David Sloan Wilson has demonstrated to be, to be a flawed assumption of a now outdated evolutionary biology that the most successful species are the most ruthless competitors. Egonomic theory has an additional flaw. It embraces money as the defining measure of wealth and, and well-being, ignoring the fact that money is just a number that banks create from nothing with a computer keystroke. We cannot eat, drink, or breathe money. It will not warm us on a cold night, nor stabilize the climate. It can buy only that which is for sale. Real value is created by the labor of Earth's living beings. That includes the labor of human beings. Yet because we accept money in exchange for things of real value, money gives, gives those who possess it extraordinary power of those who do not. The more money an individual has, the more easily he or she can outbid others in the marketplace. This transfers the benefit of the labor of those who produce what is required for our well-being to those whose labor is devoted simply to gaming the financial system to grow their claims on the real wealth created by others, with no need of producing anything of value themselves. A viable human future depends on redirecting both power and rewards to those who provide the productive labor essential to the well-being of people and earth. 
That requires a new economics, an economics grounded in an understanding of another fundamental truth. Life exists only in diverse communities of living beings that self-organize to create and maintain the conditions essential to their individual and collective well-being. I am because of the bees that pollinate, the trees that produce oxygen, the beetles that replenish the soil by aiding the decomposition of dead plants, the microbes that digest the food in my gut and recycle my waste, and the people who love and care for me as I love and care for them. Without these many diverse beings, Earth would be just another dead rock floating in space. And I would not be experiencing the miracle of life. If any aspect of this internal and external interdependence suffers serious disruption, I die. It is the same for every living being, including the living earth. Now for some 200,000 years, humans lived in communities in direct relationship with one another and the other beings of the living earth community. There emerged from the African experience Africa, the birthplace of humanity, a distinctive insight into life's inherent interdependence, an insight now confirmed by the leading edge of the physical, biological, and social sciences. Africans called it Ubuntu, which is commonly translated as, I am because you are. I am because you are. In its fullest meaning, Ubuntu acknowledges the individual's dependence on the whole of life. From this wisdom follows an insight foundational to economics. We might call it the Ubuntu principle. My well-being depends on your well-being. I do well when we all do well. The frontiers of science now give us an ever-deepening understanding of the interdependence of life. Quantum physics tells us that relationships, not particles, are the foundation of what we experience as material reality. Biology is finding that intelligent life exists only in diverse communities of choice-making organisms that together, through their labor, create and maintain the conditions essential to their individual and collective existence. The social scientists find that humans get their greatest satisfaction from caring for other living beings. These ideas are foundational to the insight that evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson calls pro-social, a recognition that we do better together as cooperating groups than as individuals competing for individual advantage. Now that's all rather obvious when you think about it, but it is totally contrary to the ideology to which we as a global species are now captive. Powerful implications follow from the Ubuntu principle for how we address the purpose of the economy, 
the allocation of power in society and the procreation of the human species. Call them the three Ps, purpose, power, and procreation. Let us take them one at a time. First is purpose, the purpose of an economy. <clears throat> Indeed, the purpose of a healthy society is the well-being of living people and the living earth. More specifically, it is to provide all people with material sufficiency and spiritual abundance while supporting the well-being, beauty, and creative unfolding of Earth's community of life. We best measure the performance of the economy using two panels of indicators, as proposed by Kate Raworth, the author of Donut Economics. The first panel of indicators tracks the well-being of the living Earth and specifically the health of the regenerative systems by which Earth maintains climate stability, ample supplies of clean, fresh air and water, fertile soils and beautiful landscapes. The second panel measures the well-being of people, all people. Is everyone getting a nutritious diet, clean air and water, a secure and comfortable place to live and satisfying relationships and a sense of purpose? Are our families and communities strong and thriving? Are our children healthy, happy, and learning? Now, if these measures are all strong, we should have no reason in the slightest to care whether an indicator called GDP is going up or down. Next comes power. For the economy to achieve its intended purpose, power must reside in people committed to the well-being of Earth and all its living beings. The people of each place must have sufficient control of their own resources to be able to adapt to the distinctive and often dramatically different local circumstances presented by meadow, mountain, jungle, desert, Arctic, and other landscapes. To deal with its distinctive needs and opportunities, each community must learn to care for and to live within the limits of the regenerative potential of their community's territory. So long as each local community meets its needs through its own labor and self-reliant balance with its local ecosystems, Earth's community of life remains in balance with itself and Earth. In an ecological civilization, securing local communities against predatory colonization by neighbors is a major responsibility of the institutions of national and global government. Within this framework, all institutions, including the institutions of business, must be accountable to the, to the community they serve. We must take note that publicly traded limited liability, for-profit corporations, hold a legal license to acquire unlimited economic power accountable only to faceless, placeless owners who trade its shares in distant faceless financial markets with a microsecond time perspective. Those corporations are mortal enemies of democracy, markets, and life. 
an illegitimate institution with no place in the ecological civilization on which the human future depends. More appropriate to our needs are local family businesses and worker community-owned cooperatives with strong community roots and a deep personal interest in community well-being. Equally obsolete is the current system of monopolistic private for-profit banks that create money by issuing interest-bearing debt that can be repaid only by growing GDP to grow the money supply sufficient to cover the payments on debt outstanding. We must organize around what makes communities most healthy rather than around what makes corporations most profitable. Now we come to the third P, procreation. This is our need to manage the continuing regeneration of the human species to maintain our balance with one another and earth while fulfilling the potentials and responsibilities of our humanity. Life replenishes and renews itself through continuing cycles of conception, birth, maturation, adulthood, death, and rebirth. These cycles are essential to life's resilience, regeneration, and continuing evolution toward ever greater diversity, beauty, awareness, and creative potential. As we advance in our ability to improve human health and delay our death, we must manage our human reproduction to limit our numbers and distribute ourselves to maintain balance with Earth's regenerative systems in every place where we humans live. The key to balancing our numbers resides in recognition that women will control their fertility if provided with education, attractive alternative career opportunities, and the means of fertility control. The more daunting challenge is the necessary redistribution of the human population as we render ever more averse places socially and environmentally unlivable. Here the key is knowing that most people prefer to stay in the place they know as home for so long as that is a viable option. We will all benefit from cooperative efforts to restore the livability of each of Earth's places wherever possible. Our future depends on a dramatic transformation in our understanding of ourselves and our relationships with one another and Earth. It begins with taking seriously the care and education of our children and the truth that it takes a village to raise a child. The human family has more than enough abused and neglected children. What we lack is adequate attention to the care and development of all our children. Imagine a world in which every child is a wanted child and all children are loved and supported by a caring community of people committed to actualizing the fullness of their humanity. We never outgrow our need for learning nor our need for a village. Our need from birth is to learn how to learn together and do so throughout our lives, a task at which conventional textbook education wholly fails. 
The disruptions of COVID-19 have exposed with uncommon clarity the dramatic failures of a society seduced by an ideology of self-centered competition. We can now see more clearly the imperative to transition to an ecological civilization that recognizes the interdependence of life and the responsibilities that go with our distinctive human ability to choose our common future. This awakening makes the COVID-19 shutdown an unprecedented opportunity to engage the transition to the culture, institutions, technology, and infrastructure of the ecological civilization on which a healthy earth community and viable human future depend. Recognition of the consequences of our global embrace of the deeply flawed ideology of egonomics is not new. Contributors to ecological and heterodox schools of economics have been advocating alternatives for decades. These efforts commonly challenge GDP as the defining measure of economic performance. They acknowledge planetary boundaries and they argue for action to reduce economic inequality. We need to build on their insights as we develop an economics dedicated to actualizing the potential of our true nature and possibility. The time has come to clearly and unambiguously acknowledge the essential wisdom of our ancestors who recognized as the leading edge of science now affirms that our well-being is inseparable from the well-being of our neighbors and a living earth. We must also acknowledge that money, which has no existence outside the human mind, is a sometimes useful economics tool that can become a deadly threat when pursued as an egonomic purpose. There is much work ahead as we find our way to a materially sufficient and spiritually abundant future for all as a thriving earth community. So, David Sloan Wilson, over to you. Okay. Uh, David Corton, uh, thank you so much for such an eloquent and comprehensive opening to what's going to actually be two to three Voice America specials with so many uh, important voices around the world. So this frames it just so eloquently and comprehensively, uh, uh, David Corton. So thank you so much. And now, yes, over now to uh, David Sloan Wilson uh, to respond and also to initiate a dialogue. So, David? Yes, I thank you also, uh, David, for such an eloquent um, uh, statement. And of course, the gospel of egonomics, as you cleverly put it, is Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. And uh, my novel, Atlas Hugged, is intended to provide an anecdote, uh, antidote to that. And I want to begin my part of this conversation by reading a passage from Atlas Hugged. We're at the climactic moment when John Galt III, the grandson of the protagonist of Atlas Shrugged, whose grandmother is Ayn Rant, who I transported into my novel, and whose father is a libertarian media giant, a little bit like Rush Lumbaugh. Um, so there's going to be a duel of speeches between John Galt III and his father. His father represents objectivism, uh, Ayn Rand's subjectivism. 
And um, and uh, John Galtree is now, his speech is going to be based on true objectivism, which is uh, really the viewpoint that you represented so well, uh, David. And so, um, and all of this is based on the plot of Atlas Shrugged, which also culminated in a climactic speech of uh, John Galt um, uh, one. And it's important to realize that objectivism uh, egonomics, uh, as you put it, is a moral system. It pretends that if everyone behaves according to its dictates, that society will benefit as a result. And that's one of the things that makes it so deceptive. It means that good people can end up doing destructive things because the meaning system uh, portrays it that, that way. And so... Um, uh, uh, in reality, it was absurd to expect that such an outcome would ever take place. In other words, uh, laissez-faire, the invisible hand, self-interest leading to the common good. Instead, each individual acting as their own God would invariably come to different conclusions about what was right and good that privileged their own welfare. And given each person's reliance upon their own thoughts and intolerance of the claims of others, Conflicts among objectivists and against society as a whole would invariably result. That is exactly what happened and led to the collapse of the Galtian's utopian society after only a few years. It is also what was happening for society at large. The only difference was that a few more decades were required in the latter case. Had my grandfather, grandmother, and father intended this result? Were they evil geniuses plotting to destroy the world for their own gain? Or were their intentions pure, but merely mistaken? The most important conclusion that I came to on this question was that it didn't matter. Either way, it was a cultural mutation that spread like a cancer and was now destroying the body politic. Given what I knew about organisms as societies and societies as organisms, thinking of the original objectivism as the morality of a cancer cell was more than metaphorical. An actual cancer begins with a mutant cell that ignores the regulatory imperatives of the whole body and proliferates more than its neighboring cells. A cancer cell can boast of a certain kind of success. By pretending that there was no such thing as a whole body, it can present itself as a model for other cells to emulate. This is precisely what the original speech did. Pretend that there was no such thing as society other than what self-interested individuals do to each other. As long as the comparison is between cancer cells and normal cells within the same body, then the cancer cell can boast of their superiority right up to the end. And so this idea of cancer, real cancer, and various ideologies as the equivalent of cancer, I think, is a deep cause for um, reflection. And in the first place, not, not a metaphor, actually literally true. Cancer researchers talk about cancer cells as cheaters, as opposed to the rest of the cells, the normal cells, which are uh, cooperative. And so the idea that a social strategy and an ideology might benefit some members of the society at the expense of others, and also undermine the success of the society as a whole, this is something that is literally, literally True. And I think it has implications for what we do about it. 
And in many ways, when I hear you, David, and when I hear other people talk about um, what we need to do, I f- it sounds to me like a normal cell arguing with a cancer cell. And the normal cell is pointing out, you know, the elaborate body that needs to be running well in order for us all to survive. I mean, how could you be so short-sighted, Mr. Cancer Cell, to be disrupting all of this? If only you could understand, wouldn't you change? And I think there's to some extent in which cancer cells don't change, in part because they uh, don't see themselves as cancer cells. <laughs> they actually think that they are that they are the morality of the whole body. And so when we take that on board, I think there's certain things that are needed. One is something that you do very well, and other ELs do this very well, which is articulate the morality of the whole body. And when I listen to you, that's what I, that's what I, I hear, a beautiful articulation of, of the whole organism, in this case, the societal superorganism, uh, what is required in order to make it function well and, and so on. And that is needed. So kudos for that. Um, th- the thing that I find often missing is that a healthy organism needs an immune system. Otherwise, it will be vulnerable to cancers. And the when we talk about the, the uh, reasonableness of love and pro-social strategies of, of uh, all sorts, basically operating on behalf of the whole organism, uh, one thing that often I think is not appreciated enough is the vulnerability of these strategies, that when we act on behalf of others, or our groups as a whole at any scale, not just at the global scale, but at any scale at all, we make ourselves vulnerable to more self-serving strategies, basically cancerous strategies. And unless we can structure our groups, our interactions at all scales to be protective against cancerous strategies, then cancers will take over. We're not going to reason them out of it. We actually have to be able to protect them against it. And against that background, if we look at the very nature of morality, what morality is and how moral systems operate, we can actually understand them as like the immune system, which are protecting not against diseases, but against cancerous social strategies. And One thing we can say about morality is that it includes two dimensions. One is a compulsory dimension. We decide that this is what's right to do, what we should do. And if we don't do it, there are consequences. Then there is a voluntary dimension. I want to help you. I'm motivated by love, sympathy, empathy. I I just want to help as an end to itself. And... There's a reason which we can see, I think, based on all of this, why these two dimensions must go together. The voluntary dimension cannot exist without the compulsory dimension because without the compulsory dimension, it's just too dangerous to be 
pro-social, to extend yourself. And sensible people pull into their shells under those um, uh, circumstances. It's not the case in contrast to what you said and what's said many times that humans get their greatest satisfaction from helping other human beings. That statement has to be contextualized. In some contexts, it is indeed the case that humans get their greatest satisfaction from helping other human beings. But in other contexts, it is not at all true. That's why we have such things as burnout. That's why when we do things for others and they're not recognized and we feel that we're not being appreciated for our contribution, it makes us angry. It makes us want to pull into our shells. And I think that the, the fact that, that what we're seeking to establish, whole organisms, abundant pro-sociality, Ubuntu, is, needs to be protected because it's vulnerable otherwise, I think, is, is what's often lacking and which needs to be needs to be provided. So often the assumption is, is that if we can get people into a compassionate frame of mind, then that's all that's necessary, that they will extend themselves compassionately and then all else will follow. But, uh, but uh, I think that that is not the case. It's, it's more challenging than that. And yet it's fully doable once we recognize what needs to be what needs to be done. I've, it turns out that I've made this point in almost every one of my conversations with the ELs. I made it to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, in my conversation with him a year and a, and a half ago. And what it speaks to is the need for not just the inner transformation, which you speak so eloquently for, but an outer transformation, which you also speak eloquently um, for David and many of the specific uh, prescriptions that you mentioned about how our economic system needs to be constructed for the benefit of the whole society. And so I would merely add, you might say, the need for this immune system component to, uh, to protect ourselves against the, the uh, cancerous strategies, which will inevitably occur in part because um, they're motivated by meaning systems which do not make them look uh, cancerous. And then the final point I want to make is that this is needed at all scales. Uh, and it was a major theme of uh, Atlas Hugged. It's, it is the society of the whole um, earth. True objectivism is not the sanctity of the individual. Is, is not the sanctity of the individual. That's false objectivism. True objectivism is the sanctity of the Earth as an individual. And so the whole Earth focus is huge. It's what, it's what has never existed on the face of the Earth and needs to be brought into being. But it also needs to be richly multi-level, which I think you have appreciated in some of your comments. We have to implement this at all levels. Individuals, especially small groups, our existing organizations, such as our nations and corporations, all of them coordinating their activity for the benefit of the whole earth. And again, finishing up at the smaller levels, when we look at ourselves as individuals, and when we look at the groups that we are in, in our daily lives, our families, our neighborhoods, our, our, our churches, our workplaces, 
the groups where everything gets done, what we find is, is that most of them are not functioning as cooperatively as they can be. That in a sense, they're riddled by cancerous strategies, not to the point of killing them, but to the point of compromising them. I mean, most of us are just muddling along in our lives and our, our groups. And sometimes operating in the role of cooperators, sometimes operating in the role of cancers, even if we don't always see it that way. And so the need for, for us to become more cooperative, more like an organism, is something that had to be, has to be applied at every level, from the individuals to small groups, all the way up. And for me, that's optimistic because it means that once we really have a clear idea of what it takes to build a superorganism, groups as organisms, complete with an immune system, then we can set about doing it at the smaller scales without needing to ask anyone's permission. It's just a matter of seeing things clearly. And we can extend it up the scale, ultimately to the global scale. So I hope that um, what I've said uh, adds, David, to, uh, to uh, what you said. And now I think we can have a, a great conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a good 10 or 15 minutes that we can devote to that. So uh, just have a chat. Yeah, I think in terms of response, um, you know, the, the devastating, literally evil philosophy of Ayn Rand has certainly influenced a great many people. And uh, the, uh, the framing of Atlas Shrugged um, counters that in a beautiful way, which hopefully will speak to those people who have been uh, seduced by Ayn Rand. But it's very interesting, your comments about the immune system um, and trying to translate that into real-world application. It, makes, it, it leads us to a recognition that the, the, the deeper cause of the cancer is what we teach as economics. It is the egonomics that we teach in virtually every institution of higher learning as absolute truth. And it's seeping down into lower levels of education and it dominates our media and the media discussions. And our first immune response needs to be to <laughs> exclude that economics, egonomics, cancer uh, from the systems by which we educate our brains to understand who we are, what we are, and what is the nature of life. And, and, and that goes to the deep source of, of our, our devastating malfunction. So you know, I think bringing it up in terms of cancer, I mean, certainly, um, well, let me, let me go to, you know, you know, this was one of the truly defining experiences of my life was an encounter with a microbiologist named Maywan Ho, um, 
who introduced herself to me at a conference in Spain and said she was familiar with, with my work and thought her understanding might be relevant. We ended up sitting on an airplane flying back to London together and that became the frame of one of my books. But, you know, what she, what she told me was so simple in a way and so obvious and yet so deep and so profound and, and so much relates to your, uh, your discussion of, of cancer. And it was, was pointing out the evident truth that each of our bodies is comprised of tens of trillions of living cells. Some of them the microorganisms that are, operate somewhat independently, but um, you know, roughly half of them being the, the, the cells that are an integral part of the body. And that those cells are engaged in the constant exchange of nutrients, water, energy, and information, all to create and maintain this vessel of our consciousness, an instrument of our agency that we know as our bodies. And when you get that into your mind, it is, you know, it is just an absolutely mind-blowing self-evident truth. How does that work? How do those how do those individual cells do that and achieve that? Now some of them go astray. I don't you know you would know far more than I do about why they go astray, but I would think of them as you know the the equivalent in humans to the psychopaths. The people that so far as we know are fundamentally incapable of uh, concern for others, of, of empathy, of, of kindness, that they see only themselves. Um, and I would assume that cancer cells are by their nature inherently defective cells for some reason or another. Um, interesting kind of question. Um, but anyhow, it, it leads us back to kind of the, 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 the deeper understanding of the extent of the interdependence, the synergistic relationships of which life is capable. And that becomes the model around which we need to learn to live as a species. Um, and that needs to be what we teach in our schools. And instead of teaching egonomics, <laughs> we really need to be teaching economics, which, but not, you know, not just as a separate discipline, but in a sense, the Ubuntu principle as being a foundation of virtually everything we teach. At the same time, teaching awareness that, yes, there are cancers, there are uh, there are forces like that evil eco egonomics that we used to teach in our schools and we used to teach uh, through our media. And look at look at the devastation it led us into. Wow. But here is the evidence of our higher possibilities. So it's a transformation of the human mind. And it's part of understanding that part of what makes us distinctive as, as human beings is our ability to, in a sense, 
create, visualize realities in our mind and live by those images, even though they may be wholly contrary to the actual reality. Um, How do we get caught up in that? Anyhow, back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great, David, and uh, so much to to, um, reflect upon. I want to begin... Uh, with the idea of intentions and the idea that when when really bad things happen, uh, whether we can attribute that to evil um, intentions. Uh, and, uh, of course, in my book, I said, ultimately, it doesn't matter. It's it's a matter of how we behave. But if you take someone like Ayn Rand, for example, and you realize, put her in the context of her times of basically Soviet communism, um, and which was which was disastrous in another way. So I mean, for the for all the disasters of capitalism, we have complementary disasters in a government which was totalitarian and and uh, centrally planned. And uh, we don't want to emulate that either. And um, so for her to become such a a um, proponent of uh, of uh, capitalism is perhaps. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, understandable. You get people like uh, Alan Greenspan, who has carried out her policies, a good man by all accounts. I mean, you know, really thought that he was doing well by the economic system that he was uh, created. He didn't know. He was dumbfounded by the by the 2008 economic collapse. That's what's so insidious about meaning systems, which are cause us to think that we're being moral, and at the same time, to do the wrong things. And everything I've said at a large scale also applies to a a small scale. I work with so many groups that are not working very well. And do you know, in most cases, there's no one I could recognize as a cheater or someone who's self-serving. Everyone actually is is, um, well-meaning in terms of trying to do well by the group, but they still manage to trip over each other. And I think that there's something about this which is convergent with Buddhism in the best sense of the word, in the first place, we need to think of things systemically. Things are so richly interconnected. You made that point yourself. And when you really take, this is an insight I got from Kurt Johnson, when you really take interdependence seriously, then certain ethical conclusions follow, namely the futility of one part of the system attacking another part of the system. And when and when you see something that seems part of the problem, that seems villainous, um, heinous, even, to see even that systemically. And therefore, the part of the system that's operating that is not exactly evil. There's just something systemic that needs to be fixed, as I think a relatively enlightened way to, uh, um, way to uh, 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 think about it. And I think it can also put people at their, uh, at their ease. But all of that said, uh, it is the case that uh, Homo uh, um, economicus, this uh, this economic system, which has been just as pervasive as you have um, has said, has had terrible consequences, does need to be replaced. And I think actually that is accelerating. I think there's good news to report there. You have uh, mentioned Kate Rayworth, who is. Um, a wonderful example of someone who gets it right, an economist who gets it right. And uh, since I work a lot with economists, I, I see much more openness to 
this whole earth ethic, something that you and I would resonate to. And so uh, I look forward to more changes in the economics profession than, than um, has been the case in the past. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah, I wouldn't wait for the mainstream economists to uh, come around. I've had relationships with them for a very long time. It's, a, it's almost like a mental disease. Um, you know, you raise the, the communism and capitalism. One of the things that I think we need to bring forward uh, around our, our, rec- our growing recognition of what is essential to the healthy organization or the organization of healthy life is that communism and capitalism, both as we tend to experience them and as we tend to define them, are extremely centralizing in terms of power and control. Uh, Now, I think Marx's ultimate theory um, of the withering of the state that he somehow had in mind a, a deep decentralization, but we have not seen any expressions of that. Um, but everything we're learning about life is that it ultimately organizes locally at the extreme local level. And basically, that's what we need to do as a human, learn to do as a human species, um, and which we did for, you know, <laughs> 100, roughly 200,000 years. Um, but now we are an integrated global species and we somehow have to act together in a way that supports that level of deeply, uh, deeply local, uh, localized self-organizing uh, within a larger frame of recognition of our total independence, in, our total interdependence as a global species. And so it's working out economic models that fit with that understanding of life that is essential to our uh, uh, to our well-being and um, again the implications for uh, for education at all levels uh, and the deepest framing uh, the economic the political the biological the cultural every aspect of our education needs to be built around a recognition of this interdependence rather than the frame of extreme individualism where each on our own, we each, uh, it all does best when we each uh, maximize our, you know, not only our, our personal consumption, but our, our personal financial return. Um, if, if you set out to um, create a framework to destroy humanity through uh, control of the human mind, you, I don't think you could much improve on what we've accomplished with our uh, our current uh, misadventure with um, the combination of Anne Rand and uh, or Anne Rant and the um, um, uh, the the neoliberal economics that we teach and practice. Yeah. So, David, David, uh, thank you. You know, we're right at about 50 minutes now. And what we are going to be doing throughout these specials is asking each guest to suggest to the audience what the best takeaway is for uh, what they've just heard. So what I want to do is go back to each of you. And I think start with uh, 
David Corton and then with David Sloan Wilson and then ask you each take a couple minutes and suggest to the audience what the takeaway is that you might really uh, advise. So uh, David Corton? Yeah, we are living beings. Our well-being depends on the well-being of living earth and one another. Um, essentially, I do best when you do best. And that's a, a fundamental reframing from most of our, um, well, the, the, everything from the frameworks or science, uh, the mechanistic framework, um, uh, to coming to an organic framework and away from the individualistic framework of much of our social sciences, particularly economics, uh, to a sense of uh, a community framework, uh, common, common well-being framework. Okay, so David Sloan Wilson. Well, my big take home is that the audience, those who are listening to this, these productions, have an opportunity to cooperate at a larger scale than they are now. Um, I know many of them well, and I know that they're doing wonderful work, working towards this vision. Um, they have more or less the same vision, but they're not coordinating as much as we can and really, we must. And so I think we need to take our own advice seriously and to expand that circle of cooperation among ourselves in, the, in addition to the whole world. I think that'll be a proof of our ability to get others to do that, is to do it ourselves. And I think that this series of conversations, starting with this one, uh, hopefully will have that effect. I'd like to see a new layer of functional organization um, uh, forming where um, where uh, we begin to function as a one organism um, uh, as opposed to many separate organisms driving in the same uh, same direction yeah so David and David thank you so much and so uh, such a great introduction to what's coming next and what's actually coming next is a discussion of the results of this cancerous activity in what's become the disunited states of America we're going to be talking to the makers of the truly influential book and film, uh, The Reunited States of America, in just a moment. So we're going to join you again in the studio in just a moment. But right after this announcement from the uh, publishers of Our Moment of Choice, uh, Evolutionary Visions and Hope for the Future. So first, a short message from Beyond Words, Simon & Schuster. Hello, this is Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words. We are very honored to be partnering with Simon & Schuster and the Synergy Foundation to bring you a new thought-provoking book for these challenging times. It is called Our Moment of Choice, and it features 43 of the world's most well-known spiritual thinkers, offering practical solutions to the most pressing problems of our time from economic inequality and social injustice to climate change and spiritual disconnection. Deepak Chopra offers his thoughts on how our inherent wholeness is not a choice, while Greg Braden suggests that we can change our world by first realizing that none of us are separate from each other. Lynn McTaggart investigates the link between altruism and self-healing. Michael Bernard Beckwith 
Bruce Lipton, and many others share their thoughts on moving forward in ways that expand our consciousness and benefit the global community. Our moment of choice calls on us all to be the co-creators of a just, unified, peaceful, and thriving world. The time has come for all humanity to be united in purpose. This is our call to action. This is our collective moment of choice upon which our future depends. You can purchase your copy today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Beyond Words, or your local independent bookstore. Welcome back to the Convergence on Voice America. We're moving over now to an important discussion with Mark Gerzon and Ben Reiki, and also joined by Dr. David Sloan Wilson. Mark is the author of the important book, The Reunited States of America, and Ben is the creator of the recent and celebrated film of that same name, The Reunited States of America, featuring Van Jones, Megan McCain, and so many others. Full bios for both Mark and Ben are at the Voice America show page, and everything about the film and how to watch it are at reunitedstates.tv. That's reunitedstates.tv. This film is one of the most important media events happening now regarding this choice between the division and tribalism of Atlas Shrugged and the vision of global cooperation and synergy in Atlas Hugged. So as we go over now to this discussion with Mark, Ben, and David, Mark will be beginning with his comments, and then it will move to Ben, and then to David. It's great to be with you, Ben. It's great you to see so you. And I'm, and I'm excited about what's happened to the film. Um, I'm really excited about what has happened, and I'm, I'm delighted that you... Uh, that you picked up this thread because when I wrote the book, I, I, I really had a high hopes for the message coming through in 2016. And of course it didn't, but thanks to you and the film, it's really taken off. Um, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I feel really excited. We're, we're just, uh, just under a month into the release of the documentary and it's, you know, it's available all across all the platforms, but it was really the title, the reunited States that brought us together uh, because here I was as a filmmaker approaching this topic, thinking that I'd come up with this incredible title that was probably too good to be true. And a, and a quick Google search led me to your book uh, that was on the same ideas of cross-partisanship and our own role in, in overcoming division. And that was a radical moment for me and, and reaching out to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with this idea uh, for the title and even just the themes of it that I know you've been working on for for a long time. Well, I've been watching uh, consciousness for about 30 or 40 years and watching, you know, like we're being challenged by evolution to kind of develop a wider identity. We have all these narrow identities, you know, Christian or Muslim or white or black or left or right or rich or poor. And we have all these identities we identify ourselves with. And in all the work I've done both in the U.S. and around the world, I've seen that, you know, those identities are absolutely dooming us to extinction. They're just absolutely, and so what I, what I love about our collaboration in the American context is that Americans are finding that out. I mean, we're finding out that we can't have these narrow definitions of who we are and be the United States of America. We can't do it. And we're a microcosm of the world in that regard. I mean, we, 
we have to start thinking like global citizens and Americans have to think, start thinking like American citizens and Arizona citizens need to start thinking like Arizona citizens. We, we've got to widen our identities and open up our hearts. And if we don't do that, um, we're in trouble. And I, I think both the book and the film uh, capture that. Um, but what have you learned from the release of the reunited States? Are you, are you feeling like Americans are listening or if you're not, what do you think is the big obstacle to that shift in consciousness? Well, it's, it's interesting. I do think that a lot of people that have seen the film have, you know, reached out and said how meaningful it is to see that there are people trying to bridge our divides. Um, still, we're in a very difficult moment as a country. I think that, you know, the events of the past several years, but more importantly of the, of the past year with the pandemic leading into this divisive election and then this insurrection, this impeachment, you know, this inauguration, uh, on top of, you know, this ongoing pandemic, it's a really trying time for people. And, you know, the fact that we are separated from each other only fuels this anxiety, this social distress of feeling isolated from each other. And you kind of touched on something there that was a big realization for me in, in, in the journey of making the film, um, The Reunited States, was this idea that it's left or right, red or blue, you know, and of course there's independence there, which outweighs, you know, both of the political parties in terms of, uh, of size. But the fact that we look at this as a binary problem, it's good versus evil, it's, you know, red versus blue. And the reality is this country is made up of hundreds of different cultures, languages, religions, gender, socioeconomic status. And so the country looks very different depending on the color of your skin or the, the gender that you are, the language that you speak. And also the country looks differently upon you for those factors. And so as much as this is a shared experience, this experiment of America, it's a little unfair to say that we're all going through the same experience. And I think that's something that we've woken up to a lot in the past year and years, but especially last summer um, after the events around George Floyd, I think there's been a huge racial awakening that's, you know, taken a long time to, to arrive and it's still people are at various points in their journey that they're going through it. Um, but what we hope that comes out with this film is that, you know, we're all on a different journey and we're all on this different points on the journey. And so for me to judge someone who may be at a different leg of the journey than I was, I used to say and do things 10 or 20 years ago that I'm kind of ashamed of now that I just was from my lack of experience of not being exposed to people different than me. And so why would I harshly judge people that might be on that leg of the journey now? And so we really hope the film can be used as a tool to bring together people with different ideas. I mean, one of the best things about having Van Jones, you know, and Megan McCain as executive producers on the project is that Van has always said, this film is a tool for people to watch with those they disagree with. If it's a family member or a friend that you haven't been able to talk to over the past couple of years, watch this film either together or on your own and then have a conversation about the movie. Um, and that becomes a little bit more of a safe territory than about these policy issues that divide us. And Mark, I mean, one of the biggest things I learned from your book that we tried to, that was a guiding principle in the film was the inner transformation that needs to happen in order to be ready to have that external conversation. I think people are so quick to rush into, oh, I need to talk, you know, change someone's mind or take action. But there's a lot of work, you know, that we're all part of this problem. And that first recognition of that uh, is what my role in overcoming that 
um, that is the one that people skip often. So I'm curious, like how you came to that realization and how that led your journey. Well, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants and I've always, uh, I'm a child of immigrants who landed in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I grew up in the middle of America with two parents who had no idea where they were. They were from Europe after World War II. So I was a stranger in a strange land and I was, I really had to reinvent like my identity. And I, I realized soon I was an American citizen with my passport, but I'm a global citizen in my heart. And, and as a global citizen, I realized I'm, I'm basically a hyphen. And a lot of people listening to this, Ben, don't know that you're Indian American, right? Your, your lineage is half Indian, half American. Mm-hmm. And you've got a hyphen right in the middle of your name. And I believe that we're all hyphens. I believe we're all hyphens. And the danger are these tyrannies of single identities. So you meet someone who says, I voted for Trump. And immediately you think you know, they know who you are. Or you meet somebody who's wearing a coat and tie and a certain kind of hat. And you think, oh, that's, that's and carrying a briefcase. And you immediately think you know who they are. And that a jumping to conclusions, that, that jumping to this feeling like I know who you are is one of the biggest deceptions. And, and what I love about this, these dialogues, uh, it goes, David Corton says the same thing in, in The Great Turning, and a lot of other people who are looking at the shift in human consciousness are saying the same thing, which is that we need as rapid, rapid an evolution in human consciousness as we have right now in our media and technology. I mean, our media technology in the last 20 or 30 years have transformed. I'm about to get rid of a bunch of CDs and and, 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 and cassette player tapes, I'm just going to throw them away. But when it comes to our consciousness and our identity, we think we can hang on to it for an entire lifetime. We think we can hang on to it generation after generation. And we can't. There's a tremendous need to accelerate our own consciousness change. And that's what I think is, is exciting about these conversations. And, and also, it's at the heart of, of, of Atlas Shrugged um, and Atlas Hugged. I mean, that shift that, that David Sloan Wilson is trying to bring forth and that David Corton's trying to bring forth and that Dwayne Elgin's trying to bring forth in choosing earth. I mean, when he says choose earth, he's, he's asking for a change of consciousness. And in fact, his book ends with the phrase you used, Ben, you said, we've got to wake up. And that's what, that's where, that's where a lot of, that's what I'm writing about now in my next book. That's what Dwayne Elgin's writing about. It's what David Corton's writing about. And I think that's what, what's the heart of David Sloan Wilson's work as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think that as a filmmaker, I really see the power of story to do exactly that. And, 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 and same with the, the books that you're talking about with Atlas Shrugged and Atlas Hugged, that it's using the power of story to see each other and hear each other better. And cinema has a very powerful role to play in challenging the way we see ourselves and the world around us. And for me, as a filmmaker, if I'm going to spend two or three years of my life on 90 minutes of someone's time, I want that 90 minutes to be transformative and to be informative and, and also hopefully affect some change or plant some seed of looking at the world a slightly different way. And I think that it's often underused um, the, the role of story in getting from where we are to where we're going. You know, you talked about the spiritual transformation that's needed and that's underway. You know, that's, that's a, a blessing and a curse. I think that there's a, the, the speed at which hate moves online is much faster than the rate at which love or transformation does. And so there's this, you know, the, the one thing that makes us human is our ability to transcend our primal instincts and to use reason to say, I'm feeling this, 
but why am I feeling this and should I act on it is that healthy or sustainable for all of us. And that's uniquely human. That's a very distinct quality. Um, but that takes self-reflection and self-awareness. And so how do we, uh, the question that I wrestle with often is if there are people that are on this spiritual journey that are taking the time to say, okay, I feel anger, but I don't need to act on it. I can actually let it pass like a storm and act, you know, in a way that's more compassionate towards uh, my, my society or are the, then there's people that are just like act on it and just like, I feel angry and I'm going to hurt someone because I'm hurt. And so the rate at which those move is slightly different. And, and, and I don't think that's, you know, should be discouraging. It's just something to be mindful of is how do we, lovingly guide other people into a place of self-awareness. And I, and I hope that that's what the power of art can do and story can do is allow you to walk in someone else's shoes and just say, I haven't lived this. I haven't been through this, but for 90 minutes or for the, the length it takes to read this book, I can actually experience someone else's life. And that's transformative. And so I just, you know, I, I'm really excited to be in a, in the company that we're in right now, because these are the ideas that are, most pressing for our time is how do we disseminate that information of that movement at the same rate that, you know, sort of the, these negative emotions are spreading. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that, Mark. Yeah. And I'm curious what David's thoughts are because I, 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 I we're all watching the same phenomenon, which is that the speed of lies is travel fa travels faster than the speed of truth. And, um, and, and that's a dangerous world, a dangerous world to live in. David, what do you make of that? Well, I've enjoyed listening to you two gentlemen and, and um, so much to say. I viewed uh, Reuniting America only yesterday, so it's very fresh in my mind. It's a wonderful documentary, very inspiring. And um, I think what I want to bring to the conversation is actually two things. One is uh, the entire science of humanity and culture and the things that you've been talking about in familiar terms, our consciousness, the power of story, um, our, the need for us to evolve in some sense, uh, our identities. Uh, the science of all of this has only become available um, very recently and is new to most people. So what we have in ourselves and the other people that are part of this conversation are people that really get the concept of conscious evolution, the need to take on a global identity, the need to tell our stories also at a local scale but not really connected with what you might call the hard science. And I think the hard science adds a, a whole bunch. Um, when you really think that 10,000 years ago, there was no large scale societies, there were only tribal identities of only a few thousand people, a society at the scale that it exists today was inconceivable. Um, if you fast forward to only a few hundred years ago, uh, the European nations were locked in war with each other. The idea of any kind of cooperative Federation of Nations or anything like that was inconceivable. Um, the American democratic experiment, it was just so such a struggle for those 13 colonies to get together at all. What we're viewing today, what we're experiencing today is not so different from what took place uh, 100 years ago during the first Gilded uh, Age and the Civil War. And, and so there's a real panorama um, that we can think about, and that can be helpful for us in making what in the broad sweep of history from the tiny tribes of 10,000 years ago to today, 
is actually, you know, you could even see it as a final step, the final rung of a, of a ladder of increasing the scale of cooperation. And even though every nation has much that it can improve upon, it's amazing the cooperation that does take place that enables us to our lives to run as well as they as well as they do. So there's a, a feast, you might say, and a real unification of a spiritual impulse um, to achieve a global superorganism and the scientific know-how to, to bring that about. But it's also complicated that unless it's conveyed through stories and through art, as you were emphasizing, Ben, then forget about it. Not everyone's gonna become a scientist. And it's here that that's why I wrote my novel, Atlas Hugged, to serve as a uh, antidote, sequel and antidote to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. I think in some ways you can think of her influence as telling a story, basically providing the artistic dimension to the entire tradition of individualism and greed is good individualism that has dominated the last 70 years uh, of world culture and especially American culture, uh, she provided the artistic dimension. And, and for that reason, she had this incredible influence. She said herself, art is the essential medium for the communication of a moral ideal. Art is the essential medium for the communication of a moral ideal. You get people like Alan Greenspan, who was her one of her uh, disciples who said that before I met Ayn Rand, I thought the free market was good. Afterwards, I thought it was right. And so what she did was she created a cosmology, a fictional cosmology that made the idea that we could all separately pursue our self-interests and that would somehow come out well for the common good. She made sense of that. She made that appear to be like, yeah, you could do that. And then people went down that path. And in many ways that's led to where we are today. And so what we need, uh, Mark, would you like to chip in here? Well, now I have a question for you, which is what I've never understood about Ayn Rand is that what was so exciting and new? Was it the story part of it that was new? Because what she was advocating was as old as Columbus. I mean, Columbus never read Ayn Rand. He lived, you know, hundreds of years before, you know, the Atlas Shrugged. But Columbus was doing exactly that. He was saying, I'm a European. I can come over here to this hemisphere. I can take whatever I want. I can take whoever I want as a slave. I can take the Brazil wood from Brazil. I can take the gold from, from everywhere. I, I can take what I want and take it back to Spain. It all belongs to me and the king and queen. And I mean, that's the ultimate in greed. That's the ultimate in, in, in taking what you want. And so where was the, I mean, but what do you think was so, I mean, to me, it was like, I mean, to me, there was nothing new. She was just making up a story about what was happening around her. And, and, and was there a grain of truth in it? Of course. I mean, we, we want individuals, we want individual achievement. But why do you think that story turns something as dark and as ugly and as cruel as imperialism and greed and domination and slavery? And how did that turn it into something that was beautiful and, and visionary and, uh, and uplifting? Yeah, you make great points, Mark, and it's, it's paradoxical. On the one hand, she's had such influence. And on the other hand, if she never existed, then individualism would be just as strong. 
So there's a thousand stories that get invented again and again to justify what we do. Whatever we do, we think we're being moral about it. That was true for <laughs> slavery. That was true for exploitation in all of its forms. Uh, almost everyone feels morally justified in what they're doing. That goes for the most heinous crimes. Ask a, go, to, go to a prison and ask the most heinous criminal why they did what they do, did, and they will feel morally justified for the, most, for the most part. And so there's thousands and thousands of stories, and this one happened to become particular. It was preceded by other stories, such as the Christian story, that, that, that basically your wealth is a sign of your moral worth, um, which, uh, which is a Christian version of that uh, uh, story. And so, and so, go ahead, Mark. Well, I just want to ask you, since you said you watched the film yesterday, the story that Ben told, or the stories that Ben told in the United States, what did you find, you know, as a, somebody who's looked very carefully at the power of story with Atlas Shrugged, and then your own your own story with Atlas Shrugged, when you saw the story that Ben crafted about modern-day America and people trying to bridge the divide, what did you find in there that was unique and, and contrib that contrib contributing? Because uh, you said any story is about making people look good, or make it, you can make yourself look good, but I, I feel, what did you feel when you watched the United States? I guess that's my question. Well, one thing that I felt, which brings in actually a new thread, was people who are brave enough to just befriend people and ask them at an individual level about their personal story. And there you get such tragic stories that even someone like the Republican operative and his wife, who now were bravely doing this, could not help but change their views. Because once you get to a one-on-one -on -one interaction with someone and you're just two human beings sitting and, and eating together and someone tells you a story like that, you cannot help but reach out to them and to create a bond which transcends whatever ideology you had before. And so that was the case of people's real personal stories conquering an ideology and, and it reminds us that one thing we need to do is just that. I mean, that's the, one of the chief messages of the story is we should just talk to each other as human, human beings. Uh, one thing that I would add to that, which is a major theme of Atlas Hugged and also the science, science behind it, is that it would be even better rather than what is short-term encounters like that, as powerful as those might be, to actually get diverse people into groups and keep them in groups and have them work together as groups, doing meaningful work. And the power of, of individuals working and nurturing groups is again something which evolution tells us because that was the only scale of human society for most of our existence. Genetically, we're actually adapted to function in small cooperative groups. And that's a layer of society which has disintegrated in modern life. Now we just have individuals living in large-scale society. And so something that we can do, and which happens again and again in, the, in Atlas Hug, that's represented by uh, basically individuals are represented as a point, a dot. They form into groups that circles. Those circles comprise larger units, such as the United States. And those larger units fit within the earth. 
And so the highest good is the earth. So as far as our social identities are concerned, and I know that you'll resonate to this, both of you, especially you, Mark, with your, with your book on global, on global citizens, you know, first and foremost, we should be thinking of ourselves as human beings, not any particular ethnic category, human beings and citizens of the earth. And we don't lose our other identities. Those other identities actually are very important, but they are subordinated to the global good. And it comes all the way down to our individual identities as serving that and serving it by forming into groups, which, are, which will enable us to thrive as individuals and be much more efficacious than before. So there's actually a whole game plan, I think, that can be had, which exists both um, in the real world, but also, of course, needs to be communicated artistically. And so, so there need to be many stories. And I think that's a point to make is that the, the um, evolutionary leaders in this broad community, we've mentioned names like David Corden and so on, are turning out many stories. And that's the way it, that's the way it, uh, that's the way it uh, should be. Um, yeah. I think um, a fictional cosmology um, adds something. Maybe we could get to that next, Ben. What is it that art per se adds, no matter how gifted you are as a writer? And um, Mark, you've published many books. I've published many nonfiction books. Uh, there's something about a fictional cosmology which adds something. And that comes back to the fact that, once again, there's something about us humans that are storytelling animals. There's something about telling stories yeah. that is like intrinsic to what it means to be human. And Ben, back to you. No, absolutely. I mean, we were sitting around the fire half a million years ago, grunting through our stories. And, and that's always been at the foundation of social structure is using story to make sense of the world around us and to try and frame it into some kind of morality that we could then see ourselves in and, and live our lives by. And so the power of story, I think, should not ever be underestimated in its capacity for change, because that's how we've changed all throughout our species history. Uh, you know, when we started making the reunited states, a lot of people would kind of get a little academic about the storytelling and say, story, you have to have conflict in order to be drama. And I used to push back and say, I think transformation is incredibly dramatic and watching someone confront their own worldview and watching that crumble is a very uh, conflict driven narrative. And, and so it's not necessarily two people battling each other. Although I think that's why action movies or narratives that have that kind of level of spy intrigue or police intrigue are hospital dramas, you know, where it's life and death. Those are the ones that, that catch us viscerally but there is uh, a power of emotion that can affect change in the mind. And, and a lot of the time when we're trying to speak to the mind, we, we might lose someone or it might feel like uh, a tiring exercise. Whereas if you speak to the heart, people are absorbing information without even realizing it. And I think that part of what is happening in the country now is that it's, it's a heart movement that will get us from where we are. I mean, right now we live in two different realities where even the sets of facts or the, the, you know, how we define reality is not aligned with, with large groups of people, tens of millions of people. And, and 
we're going to have to feel our way through this. This isn't something we can say, okay, we have to get on the same page with the facts before we can even talk. Because if we do that, we're not even going to be at the table together. And it's probably going to be like this for a while where we live in these different media ecosystems and sets of realities. And so now more than ever, the thing that will connect us is the pain that we've experienced. You know, most of this anger, and I'm curious, David, your thoughts, you know, just from a scientific point of view on conspiracy theory and how the mind has evolved to recognize patterns that may or may not be there as a defense mechanism, but how we move past that is through recognizing that the reason we even think that that's happening is because something has happened to us that's hurt us and that we need to find an explanation that of why that, of why we're being oppressed. Um, and if we can see that, then we can see that we're, we're all suffering in similar ways and that there's a very common thread of, you know, suffering on this planet that, that we all share and that we can all work through together. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the historical context of conspiracy theory um, and why it's so prevalent, because it's not, you know, a lot of people say it's like education or lack thereof, but it seems that, you know, when I was growing up on the left, it was the Illuminati that we were talking about that was, you know, this global cabal. And it's the same thing that QAnon is. It's just replaced a lot of the characters and terms and stuff. And so it's not. And millennial, right. millennial movements throughout the ages. This, uh, you know, the second coming of Christ and all of, all of that. What we can say about the human mind is that it toggles very easily between two modes. One is the proto-scientific mode in which we kind of, you know, understand things the way they really are. And the other is, a, a you might say, a proto-religious mode. Uh, but I don't even want to use the word religious. But what it does is it embraces falsehoods whenever they're useful, <laughs> whenever they're useful, because the mind is an organ for survival and reproduction. And if a false belief helps you to survive and reproduce, then the mind will be very quick to adopt it and defend it. So there's nothing new about fake news. It penetrates all of our meaning systems, not just our religions, where it's transparent to the non-believer, but our secular meaning systems shot through with adaptive uh, uh, falsehoods. And so that makes it a struggle to be a scientist. It makes it a struggle to see the world as it really is. Nevertheless, we can and we must. And in the modern world, in order to solve the problems of our age, we must function in very strong scientific mode, and yet also function in mythic mode, because we are storytelling animals, and to make those compatible with um, each other, basically. And that is, that is, uh, that is possible. And that's actually uh, the very much the theme of, uh, of um, um, Atlas Hug. The two protagonists are the grandson of the protagonist in Atlas Shrug, John Galt III, who is rebelling against the objectivist empire of his father and grandfather and grandmother, Ayn Rand. Uh, but also the female protagonist is named Eve Eden, and she comes from a devout Christian background. And they're both searching for a way to tell right from wrong without needing to peer through a tissue of lies. Why is it, why is it that our meaning systems, on the one hand, they, they provide our moral system, so they do create a sense of right and wrong. But why all that, why all, why such fabrications are required? Well, let me both on the idea. side, both on the both on the side of Christianity and on right. the side of objectivism, which was Ayn Rand's right. 
philosophy. Why can't we tell right from wrong without, peering, without needing to peer through a tissue of lies? Why can't we just have a scientific foundation for our moral systems? And, the, and, and actually we can, but that's what's new. Well, and it needs question. to be communicated. It needs to be communicated both scientifically and in mythic mode, in story mode. Mark, <laughs> I have a question for you. I have a question for you, or it could be for Ben as well. That that I just realized in this conversation, I just learned something from listening to both of you, which is that when Ben used the term conspiracy and asked you about it, a conspiracy is a story. Uh, conspiracy is a story, and we've been talking about story as this wonderful thing, right? Story is this wonderful thing. But I'm just realizing that, that there's stories that, um, that raise consciousness. There's stories that uplift. Uh, there's stories, and there's stories that um, lead to violence and even to genocide. Um, totally. And so I'm just curious what, what anyone on this, what, what either of you think about, what has evolution taught us about how we can distinguish between a story that's that's truly good for our survival and our reproduction and our, the flourishing of ourselves in the next generations and stories that are toxic stories that are deceptive. In other words, uh, you know, I mean, both Ben and I made the choice in our, in my book and in his film, he, we've made the choice to tell stories about real people who are doing real things that we think are in the interest of human survival and human betterment. But there are other people making books and making movies who are, you know, who are feeding, you know, QAnon and who are feeding, you know, racism and who are feeding imperialism and who are feeding, um, you know, uh, you know, this hatred of the left or hatred of the right. And I, I guess what I'm curious what either of you think, Ben, you as a storyteller and you, David, now as, as a novelist, how can somebody listening to us today distinguish between a story that's a conspiracy and a story that's, that's actually healing and uplifting? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to me, the idea of conspiracy as a story and, and David kind of touched on it, you know, even looking back in, in religion, there is a certain amount of fiction that you, that is involved in faith where, you know, there's a creation story or whether it's Hinduism or Christianity or Islam, um, that is a leap of faith and a belief in something that is unexplainable or unprovable or disprovable. And then it really becomes faith. And so to me, I, you know, the power of how that's used to do good or bad is really in the creation of that story. I mean, there's a famous dilemma, right? Like have more people been saved in the name of Christ or slaughtered in the name of Christ? And, and that's, you know, just looking at the crusades or, or in God rather, sorry, um, because it's all religions that have used it to unite people, but also to eliminate entire groups of other people. And so it's really in how that story, who's telling that story and who's receiving that story. Um, like for me, I, 50 million people believe that the election was stolen and there's a lot of data that they have assembled or one could argue has been manufactured or that enforces that idea, but that's a large number of people. And it's hard for me to believe that all those people have ill intent or are bad hearted people. I think that there's really, uh, a need to understand the pain that, that they're in and that people are suffering. And this, like David so eloquently articulated, it's an adaption of the human mind to protect itself and preserve self-preservation. If this story will help you uh, move forward in your life in a way that will secure your uh, you know, prosperity or your own survival, 
Um, that's a, that's a, that's something that we're hardwired for, and so that's not necessarily the individual's fault. That's something that's in our DNA, and so the power story does have you know these two sides of the coin: one where it can show us each other's humanity, and the other that can strip us of that. And and that's you know um, the good and bad side of of our evolution. I don't think that you know that's why hate can lead to someone killing someone, but love, it's very hard to show the benefits of love because you're saving people. It's not like you're eliminating them. And so I guess you take the good with the bad, like with everything, it's not so binary. There's all kinds of shades of gray in between. Well, I'll take up that baton and just point out that, um, of course, what made Darwin's theory so disturbing from the very beginning was that it uh, doesn't make everything nice. It results in suffering. It results in competition. And that's not just individuals against individuals, but it's group against groups. And when cooperation involved, evolved, and all the good side of human nature, love, sympathy, nurturance, and all that, typically is of the within-group variety, and is often, not always, but often pitted against other, other groups. And so the idea that we would simultaneously be loving within our moral circles and dehumanizing and predatory uh, towards other groups is just the way it's always has been and remains in non-human species. In most indigenous cultures, the word for human is our people. Um, <laughs> not other, not other uh, uh, tribes. And so that explains why, uh, why our stories serve both, func both functions, basically, our weapons um, um, towards other groups and our more nurturing within, within our groups. And so the, uh, now that said, over the long stretch of evolution, including genetic evolution, there has been a gradual increase in the scale of cooperation. Um, groups becoming so cooperative that they become new higher level organisms again and again and again. Social insect colonies and hu human origins is a step in that, um, in that direction. And then some of the major epics of human history, such as the Axial Age religions, Christianity, Buddhism, which we were just alluding to. The good news is, is that they provided a social glue that enables societies to function at a larger scale. The bad news is, is that was always in the context of warfare at an even larger scale. I had the opportunity to, uh, with Kurt, to have a conversation with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama uh, last year. And in preparation, I read up on the history of Tibetan Buddhism. And it took place in a, a social environment of incessant warfare in a feudal society that the religion never questioned. And it was only the question of the scale of the warfare. And what the religion did was it, it increased the size of the cooperative group, always in competition with other groups. It's always been that way, but that's not to say it has to be that way in the, in the future. What we're reaching for now, which is unique in human history, is this final rung of worldwide cooperation. We, we need to bring Gaia into being. We need to have, we need to turn the whole earth into a cooperative unit. Never happened before, never even been conceivable until quite recently, yet it is possible. And so that is what we're, what we need to do. We need to do it as scientists. 
and we need to do it as storytellers. Yeah, that's great. So what I'm going to do here, this has been such a great discussion. I'm going to want to give each of you a chance to kind of, you know, say the last thing that might be your takeaway or the takeaway that you might really suggest for our our listeners. And so let, let's start with that with David or Ben. Do you want to uh, give that takeaway? Ben, sure. Where you go? Yeah. Um, well, I'll just keep it very topical to the film and, and the discussion. Um, you know, the reunited States really uh, kind of shows this evolutionary possibility that we can change our country and our world one conversation at a time and that it's a very immediate step that we can all take. And, you know, it seems really ambitious that so many things need to change both in our country and in our world. And it's even hard to think of the world when there's so much trouble at home. Um, but it's really just one day at a time and one interaction at a time. That's where transformation happens. And so in those conversations, the one, you know, we've all lost a lot of family members and friends and colleagues over political disagreements. The one thing I would say that's been a big takeaway for me is, you know, what we have control over because we can't change other people is how we enter in and frame these conversations. If we're going in trying to change someone's mind, it's inevitably going to lead to conflict. But if we go in with the goal of understanding where they're coming from, we can actually find common ground in the pain we've experienced. And so just that simple framing that, you know, we're not here to change anyone's mind. We're here to understand each other. And by doing that, we get mutual curiosity, mutual respect, and mutual appreciation for each other's experience. And that's how we evolve and grow together. Yeah, absolutely. So either David or Mark. I'm happy to go next. I think that I'd like to add something. Uh, it's been touched upon, but I want to end on this note that um, if we're lucky enough to and gifted enough to accomplish a change of heart, which I think the Uniting America documentary does very successfully, and it chronicles those, of course, who did have a change of, of, uh, of heart, then that's wonderful, but only a start because we must then provide some kind of guidance for what they can do on that impulse, basically. They're now inspired to do something different than, than before. But if they don't receive any guidance, then I think that um, that energy, that energy that's been, that heartfelt energy that's been unlocked is likely to be dissipated. And so uh, it might find expression in some cases, but for the most part, it will be dissipated and the effect will be short lived. And so that means that there has to be an entire apparatus for once people are engaged, then to engage them, find ways to engage them over the long term to reinforce it, to get them together, for working first at the scale of small groups, and then those groups to be working at larger scales um, still. And so it, you might call it a social engineering project. The term social engineering has creepy implications for a lot of people, but it can be of a more enlightened form. Uh, so uh, what's needed is both an inner transformation, the kind of thing that your movie has done so well, and an outer transformation that still needs to be constructed. And I would love the gifted people that have been brought together in these conversations, this conversations and, and other ones, to really take that very seriously so that we could work together on the, on the outer transformation that's coupled with the inner transformation. 
Well, thank you, David. And I'm, I'm glad I waited because listening to your and your phrase, change of heart, crystallizes what I want to say, which is that if I had four words I'd want to leave people with, it would be put love into practice. Putting love into practice. That almost everybody listening to this and everybody says, I'm a loving person. I love my pets. I love my mom. I love my daughter. I love my wife. I love my husband. Almost everybody sees themselves as loving. And yet, as, as, as you just said, David, the world that we're creating doesn't look like an expression of love. Uh, it's starting to look a lot like an expression of love. And so the question is, what happens to our love? What's, what's blocking us from putting love into practice? And I think you put your finger on it, which is that tribally, we were used to loving a family or a clan. That's what we were wired to do. And, and the challenge of civilization now is, can we love 350 million Americans to take the case of the United States movie and the United States of America book? Can we love, you know, 7 billion, America, 7 billion human beings? And that's stretching us. That's stretching us. We, 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 we can't quite do that. We're, we're, we're struggling to change our neurobiology so we can love. And that's why the four words I'm leaving people with is put love into practice and, and put love into practice on a, on, a, on a wider scale than you believe you possibly could. That's the evolutionary challenge is can we put love into practice on a wider scale than we ever believed we possibly could? No, absolutely. And thank you so much. I mean, Mark and uh, Ben and David, this is the first time that the three of you have had a chance to talk to each other. So actually impossible to do that justice, even in the 45 minutes that we've shared. And we're really so grateful for that. So what we're going to do now is jump back to the studio and that's going to allow us to toggle over to uh, what's next in the program. Well, welcome back again to the studio. What an amazing and informative discussion with Mark Gerzon, Ben Reiki, and David Sloan Wilson about the book and the current film, The Reunited States of America. Now, I'll be joining you again to tell you about what's coming next in our Voice America special in April, which is our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged, Part 2, in just a moment. After this message from the publishers of Atlas Hugged, and from pro-social world. Hey there, this is David Sloan Wilson, eager to tell you about my new novel, Atlas Hugged, a sequel and antidote to Ayn Rand's famous novel, Atlas Shrugged. Even if you never read Atlas Shrugged, you probably know that it has been hugely influential in providing a moral foundation to the greed-is-good individualism of our times. In contrast, not only does Atlas Hugged provide a moral foundation for pro-sociality in all of its forms, but it is based closely on modern evolutionary science, so much that what happens in the novel can actually take place in the real world. Atlas Hugged is so anti-Rand that it isn't even being sold. Instead, it is gifted for whatever the reader wishes to give in return, and is available only at atlashugged.world. All proceeds go to the nonprofit organization ProSocial World, which seeks to bring about the vision of Atlas Hugged in the real world. So hugs, and back to our programming. So welcome back again. This is your series host, Dr. Kurt Johnson, and I'm here to conclude this first Voice America special on our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged, and to tell you about what's in the upcoming second special in April. In April, our moment of choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged Part 2, 
will feature David Sloan Wilson, the author of Atlas Hugged, engaging the author and filmmaker Dwayne Elgin about Dwayne's important book and film, Choosing Earth, and also engaging Jude Curavan of The Whole World View and the well-known book, The Cosmic Hologram. David will then chat with Terry Patton of the Global Integral Community and most recently author of The New Republic of the Heart, and with Anne-Marie Forhoof, the founder of the Hague Center for Global Governance, Innovation, and Emergence. That program will conclude with a dynamic discussion of stories and how stories make and change our world. That discussion will feature Linnea Lombard of New Stories and Great Transition Stories, Robert Atkinson of The Story Commons and author of the Nautilus Award-winning book, The Story of Our Time, and Tayana David of The Circle of Wisdom. When it's posted in April, you'll be able to locate it easily at the show page for The Convergence here at Voice America. Just Google The Convergence at Voice America. So join us again in April for our Moment of Choice, Atlas Shrugged or Atlas Hugged, Part 2. And until then, stay safe and lots of love from all of us. I search my way through wreckage, try to find a piece to save. Was it a hurricane? Was it rain? Was it a warm tsunami? an insult to the brave While all our hearts are mortgaged and our minds are media slaves The world is warming up as we are Mother Nature's wage Just inside she is taking Just in time Or will we collapse Just in time